Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Today we're looking at Westminster Confession of Faith 5.4 concerning God's permission, His holiness, and the fall. Uh, Before we read and before we start, it is worthy to note that this topic of the origin of evil is one that is very difficult. And if you are listening to this in the midst of horrific suffering or trauma or tragedy, there are ways in which stating some truths and trying to explain what the confession is saying, they could be received as trite or assuming that we know more than we actually do. And and the purpose of this podcast is to help us understand what the divines meant when they said what they said based on how they understood the Bible. Remember, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a summary of the Bible's teaching. It's a wonderful summary. And so our job today is to discern what the divines are saying in 5.4. Again, to remind you, the Westminster Assembly was an advisory body of theologians to the English Parliament, which met at Westminster from 1643 to 1648, and it produced this this range of standards for church order and government and worship and doctrine for the churches of England and Scotland and Ireland, and has been used ever since by Presbyterian churches across the world. So chapter 5.4 addresses this fundamental question, how Do God's sovereign authority and providence relate to the origin of evil? I'm going to read it, and then we're going to ask three questions. 5.4 reads, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God manifest themselves so completely in His providence that it extends even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, not by a bare permission, but by a permission which has joined with it a most wise and powerful limiting, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a varied administration for his own holy purposes. However, the sinfulness comes from the creatures alone and not from God, who, because he is most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin." Three questions we're going to address here is, first, does God's providence extend to evil and sin? What does it mean that his providence extends not by a bare permission, and then does God author evil? First, does God's providence extend to evil and sin? The answer is yes. The central point that is made in 5.4 is that God displays his almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness in order to show forth those things in his providence that extends to the first fall and in all other sins of angels and men. The reality and the presence of evil and sin do not nullify God's power, wisdom, or goodness. Since God really does ordain and govern everything, and the scriptures are abundantly clear that that is a true statement, God ordains and governs everything. He must have ordained Satan's rebellion as well as Adam and Eve's, 
or else there would be some aspect of creation outside of his governance, and that would compromise his deity, which simply cannot be based on the revelation of Scripture. However, we must be careful to note that in ordaining and governing everything, including the first fall, God neither commits nor commends sin. There's a lot of debate over which term to use when speaking on this question. Do you use the word permit, allow, author, ordain? It's important for us to know that all these terms have incredible limits because we are speaking of a divine mystery And our language to describe this must not compromise what we know to be revealed about God. The things we know are God's fully sovereign. He's holy. He's good. And to try to find a word to describe God's providence in the origin of evil, it's really difficult because the words all tend to compromise either man's responsibility or God's sovereignty or God's holiness or God's goodness. And the origin of evil is just not spoken of in Scripture with great clarity. Genesis 3, there's a snake. The reality of evil and sin is very clear in the Bible. It's reality. But the origin of evil, we don't hear a lot about what happened or how. There's two passages that speak very clearly of the first fall of angels. The first one, 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, the angels cited in this verse seem to be the evil angels who sinned before the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, though the The point Peter's making is is not to talk a lot about that origin, but to explain that if the angels who fall are judged, he will also certainly judge ungodly people. That's Peter's point. Peter's point is not to go into philosophical origins of evil. He's just saying angels fell from heaven into judgment. Then you look at Jude 1.6 and says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Again, a fact. There was a rebellion among the angels, and they abandoned their areas of ministry or their residence. The Bible just says that's true, that happened. And since God ordains and governs everything, and the Bible makes this clear, the divines say that The fact that God governed that fall is also true. Others have reached for passages in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 to describe the fall of Satan, but the prophet in those passages is speaking of the leaders of Babylon and Tyre, though there's some commonality of language concerning fall from glory. But the bottom line I'm making is where Scripture is clear and where the confession is clear is this. God ordains and governs everything, and God's providence extends to the first fall of angels and humans. He is sovereign, he is good, he is holy, and he neither commits nor commends sin. And yet his power, wisdom, and goodness are put on display in his providence over the fall. That's a good summary of the Bible's teaching. Beyond that, I have difficulty to explain the philosophical details that ensue from those truthful statements. 
The second question is, what then does it mean that his providence extends not by a bare permission? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, The confession says, not by a bare permission, but by permission which has joined with it a most wise and powerful limiting and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a varied administration for his own holy purposes. What is the confession seeking to clarify and establish with this not by a bare permission language? Well, a bare permission, as the divines would have seen it, would be an involuntary decision where somehow God steps out of the picture so that he allows things to happen only to step back in and fix it all. Did he set up a world where sin was a possibility and then he checked out while that choice was made only to step back in to redeem it? No. This governance, even to the fall, was an active permission, according to the confession, to his own holy ends. Some think the word allow is softer because it feels more passive. But if you're sovereign and you allow something, it's the same as choosing it because you had all the power to stop it. This is the difficulty of understanding this. God is sovereign, and thus we understand he actively permitted and ordained the origin of this fall, and yet, as we'll establish next, without any compromise of his holiness, but all to his holy ends. I don't have a mind that can get my head fully around that. But again, we function with what is extremely clear in the Scripture, the holiness, justice, goodness, righteousness of God and his sovereign rule over all things. So the confession then asks, does God author evil? It's, well, the question out of the confession when you read it was, well, then does God author evil? Author evil? And the answer is no. The actual sinfulness of people and situations proceeds only from the creature, the confession says, never from the creator. Why? Because he's most holy and righteous. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. 1 John 2, 1, 16, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. He's neither the author or approver of sin. The Bible teaches that God is completely in control of what happens in history, and yet he exercises that control in such a way that human beings are responsible for their freely chosen actions and the result of those actions. And what I just said to you is a mystery. Two simultaneously true statements that our minds can't hold together or get around, that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Our minds struggle to see how those two things could come together. But we have to remember this. When we think of God, think humbly, biblically, and carefully. And understand his wisdom is unsearchable. In other words, we have limits. We can know God, the absolute God, but we cannot know him absolutely. We cannot fully comprehend God, though we can apprehend some knowledge. His ways and paths are beyond our full tracing. But if you want to see a passage where sovereignty and responsibility stand together, just consider Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10 says, God calls Assyria, and he calls Assyria the rod of my anger in verse 5. 
He's indicating that he is going to use Assyria to deal with Israel's sins. His sovereign plan has Assyria as his instrument of judgment. And yet, Assyria is held responsible for its actions. I send him, Assyria, against a godless nation, Israel, says God, but this is not what he, Assyria, intends. That is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy. So while God uses Assyria for his sovereign disciplinary purpose according to his holy and wise ends, Assyria's motivation is sinful as they move against Israel with a cruel and arrogant intent to destroy and dominate, and God will both use and judge Assyria. God's complete sovereignty, man's total responsibility for sin. I really, really appreciate what D.A. Carson says concerning human responsibility as it pertains to evil and good. And this is an excerpt from his book, How Long, O Lord? Quote, if God is good, which the Bible affirms, then it must be the case that God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. That is, he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside of the bounds of his sovereignty, yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, secondary causes. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. In other words, if I sin, I cannot possibly do so outside of the bounds of God's sovereignty, but I alone am responsible for that sin or perhaps others who tempted me or led me astray and the like. God is never to be blamed for our sin. But if I do good, it is God working in me both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God's grace has been manifest in my case, and he's to be praised. And I love what Carson says here. (laughs) If this sounds just a bit too convenient for God, my initial response is that according to the Bible, this is the only God there is, and there is no other. Westminster Divine and Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian Samuel Rutherford gives further clarity in his own catechism. He wrote, to give clarity to perplexing questions, I would just read these to you. His catechism asks, does God have any involvement in sin? Yes, God does allow men to sin. He also punishes sin and directs it to his own glory, yet he never approves, loves, or commands sin. But is God not the author of sin when he hardens men's hearts? Not at all. God as the ruler and judge of the world leaves men to harden their own heart. He punishes sin by sin in such a way that no guilt attaches to him. But how can God be free from sin if he works in sin? Rutherford asked. The Lord can touch a snake and not be stung. He's like a good painter that draws black lines in the image to make the white appear more beautiful. 
or like the chemist extracts good oil out of poisonous herbs. A musician can make a pleasant sound from an out-of-tune harp. In the same way, God acts in a completely holy and just way as judge in hardening men's hearts. So, God's providence in the first fall and sin and everything around that is a great mystery. What's not a mystery is who God is. He is holy and righteous. He is good and powerful and wise, and he is not the author of sin. But even this mystery that we're talking about is a small mystery when compared with the real wonder of God's providence, that he would provide his only son on a cruel cross to bear our sin and suffer our punishment. That is the highest wonder of God's providence. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Pillar and Ground.